Well, several years ago, there was a contestant on the popular television show, American Ninja Warrior. You guys watch American Ninja Warrior? Anybody ever watch that show and you think, oh, I could do that? <laughs> then you go to your garage or your backyard and realize, I can't do that. Well, they had a contestant on there who was affectionately named uh, Grandpa Ninja, is what they called him. His legal name is Kelvin Antoine, and at 51 years old, he was one of the oldest men to compete in the competition. Antoine would make history at American Ninja 4 by becoming the oldest man at the time to complete the qualifying round. I remember watching an episode in which he was competing, and they interviewed him, and they asked him about his age, and this is what he said. Age is just a number. Age is just a number. That sounds right when you're enjoying athletic success that has you featured on a nationally televised program. So sure, sure, age is just a number. But I'm not sure Abram or his wife Sarai would agree. Age means a whole lot more. And we know as much from our text, if not from our own lives. You see our text right in verse 1. It begins with noting that Abram was 99 years old. That is not young. Just outside our text, in fact, in verse 17, Abram, who's by this point now Abraham, makes reference to his advanced age as well as talking about the advanced age of his wife, who is said to be 90 years old. Unless we forget about age in this chapter, in verse 24 we hear once more that Abraham is 99 years old a reminder of his advanced years. So clearly age is not just a number. But why? Why is it just not a number? Well, perhaps the most obvious is when it comes to aging, the vantage point of the ancients wasn't too unlike our own. They weren't in some totally different world where age somehow didn't, especially advanced age, didn't have certain qualities that came alongside it. Sure, in our own day, we devised all matter, manner and moder of modern tricks and techniques to mask and mitigate our aging bodies. We can color our hair. We can color our teeth. We can wear colorful clothing. I don't know, what, whatever you're doing, right? We do all kinds of things with creams and lotions and surgeries. But should we live long enough, eventually our age is going to show. It's going to be apparent that we're aging. The ancients knew as much as well. You only need to read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 to hear the ancients on this point. And because of this, this, in this story, the first absurdity that comes to us in this account out of Genesis is what we might call a biological absurdity. The promise that's given to Abraham is absurd on biological grounds. All this talk of being made exceedingly fruitful, a multitude of nations, that seems like a tall order. For someone of Abraham's age, though perhaps not totally impossible. We know as much because People Magazine reminds us all the time of such arrangements. It's the stuff of Hollywood, right? And Abraham already had a son, Ishmael, who was born 13 years earlier to Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. He would later marry Keturah after Sarah dies. We see that in chapter 25, and there we read that he has children with her. And that in that same chapter, we learn that he has concubines and other children. So it's not an impossibility on that side of the promise. Where the absurdity comes is regards to whom the promise is made. Abraham, yes, is indeed one who will keep his namesake. 
He'll be an ancestor of a multitude. But the promise is not his alone. We hear that in verse 15, that the promise is to be fulfilled through Sarah. And as we've already seen, she's 90. Hollywood may produce a number of aged dads, but moms, that's the biological absurdity in this promise. So absurd that the same Abraham who said in verse 3 to fall on his face when God appears and speaks to him, presumably out of reverence and fear, in verse 17 now falls on his face laughing because it's so silly. Because age is more than just a number. But the biological absurdity isn't the only challenging notion here. There's another absurdity that occurs here, what we might call the chronological absurdity. Specifically, a lot of time has passed since that time when God appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 with the initial call. How much time? Do you remember what it was like to go to an airport and not go through TSA? You guys remember that? You ever been on a plane back then and someone jumped in before they shut the door? Came running from the ticket counter? Remember when people used to go and play games at the airport? There's all kinds of youth activities that were done at the airport. People playing sardines and hide and seek. Climbing around on baggage carousels. Do you remember all the nervous energy and the hand wringing that the build up to Y2K? Remember that? Our toaster oven's going to attack us? Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? Y2K. We had to cancel our youth all-nighter because of Y2K because people thought they're going to take to the mean streets of Fairwood and take over the planet. But that time span, that seems like a lifetime ago, and for some it was a lifetime ago, even more. That same time span is roughly the same amount of time between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17. Because if you read in Genesis chapter 12, it says he was 75 years old, and now he's 99. Why would God wait so long? Why would God wait so many decades before fulfilling a promise here? Why would he have them, this couple here, endure such a wait? Well, if your experience is anything like mine, you know that any kind of wait like this, W-A-I-T, can start to feel like a W-E-I-G-H-T wait. Amidst such seeming absurdities, I think many of us can identify with some of the episodes then that unfold in the life of Sarah and Abraham. The deception and half-truths for self-preservation that we see in chapters 12 and 20. The effort to bring to fruition the promise of offspring in chapter 16. Even the effort to cover up one's own laughter that we see in chapter 18. In short, like the ancients, we moderns oftentimes try to take matters into our own hands. We try to be our own miracle. We try to hasten God's work. We try to move the plan along. And our lesser angels reason as much that this makes sense and this is the way that life should be lived. But lest we imagine this way of living is doing us any favors, know what J. Ryan Lister writes regarding sin in his book, Emblems of the Infinite King. Sin messes with your head. It turns your good sense inside out and upside down. It's how you know that everyone is a sinner but you never think of yourself as one. It's why you see other people's sin so easily, but can't see that same sin in your own heart. Sin messes up everything. 
in the world, in you, and in your relationship with other sinners. Abraham, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, will be lauded for faith. In fact, his section in the Hebrews 11 is the longest one devoted to an individual. And that, of course, can lead to an outsized imagining of the quality of this individual. But the reality is that Abraham and Sarah and the ancients in total were sinners, like you and me. They were like us, who often exhibited wavering faith in the face of all kinds of obstacles and threats. That God would covenant with this lot is astounding. And it says something about who God is. And it says something about what God is up to. As much as the ancients waver, God remains steadfast in making good on promises that have been made. That much is clear throughout the Abraham-Sarah account. Both call and blessing are not nullified by their wavering response. And so following an attempt to take matters into their own hands, that's chapter 16, our reading opens in chapter 17 with, I am God Almighty. Verse 1, El Shaddai. Think of the Amy Grant song right now. Actually, I think of a friend of mine who turned it to, well, should I have another piece of pie? Like he changed the words. <laughs> kind of ruined the whole song for me from then on as I heard that. But our reading opens up with this, I am God Almighty, that God is the powerful one, that God is the one who's capable here, and that's who appears to Abraham. God isn't finished with Abram and Sarai at this point. Their story hasn't been fully written. You think about all that has transpired during that time leading up to that, and here in this chapter, this new chapter, God appears to them once more and says, essentially, to the weak ones, I'm the powerful one, and I still care about you. I still have a plan for you. I still have a story to write in and through your lives. And we see there that God now riffs on an earlier promise in verse 2. I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Not only is God not done with them, God will work with, in, and through this couple for a very particular purpose. This then is joined here with what we might call a human obligation. In the second part of verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. That such an obligation here shows up and that it presents itself is not unheard of. We see this kind of thing in the original call of chapter 12, where Abraham is called to go, and from there God will make him into uh, what this blessing has for him. Abraham and his family leave the security of family, land, and vocation to lay hold of these and more that's promised to them by God. Chapter 17 then marks what Abram is to do for his part. Walk before me. That's not a walk like from point A to point B. God's not saying, you go from here to there and we're good. That's not what he's saying. It's not a limited type of thing like that. But instead, you're to walk with me in the wanderings of life. As you travel about, wherever you go. Of course, when you hear that kind of talk, that sounds a lot like discipleship. The one who follows, right? That's what they're being called to. And it certainly sounds like what the Reformers called Coram Deo when they talked about the Christian life. This idea of walking before the face of God in everything that we do, everywhere we go. And that's the context in which life is to be lived. It's to be lived before God. But if that's the context, 
What then is the content of this life? Well, the call, the obligation of the call, says to be blameless. Abraham and his family are to live lives of integrity. They live complete lives, whole lives that are consistent, like those who walked before. Think of the famous Enoch, who's said to have walked with God, or even Noah, who's been described as a person of this kind of integrity. Some older translations here, of course, render blameless with the word perfect, which leaves us thinking that he was to be sinless, right? We get that kind of picture. You've got to live a perfect life. But that's not what's going on there. In fact, John Goldingay observes here, God is realistic and can cope with people making moral mistakes. Rather, God looks for a certain direction in people's lives, a certain cast to their lives, a fundamental moral wholeness or straightness. So God here is calling Abraham to a specific purpose and for a unique kind of blessing and saying, be that person through these obligations. Be that person and see what happens. Live this kind of life before God and see what happens. See what happens in all that. What happens is what happens when ancients and moderns have decided to follow. And if you want to start singing in your head right now, I have decided to follow Jesus, go ahead. You can have that. Play that, play that in the background. It might be a nice little soundtrack to have. There's a transformative effect. People and situations are changed by God's covenant. That covenant love alters trajectories. They're now shifted. Futures are now altered for the better. You might say, no, it's not. That hasn't been my experience. I haven't gotten richer. In fact, I might be poorer now. Right? Your experience may not be those type of things that's just described there, or at least a certain interpretation of that. It doesn't mean, though, here that people then are going to be absent of pain, misery, or even live perfect lives. Abraham will die. Sarah will die. All their family will die. They've seen the misery. They've seen the pain. They've seen the suffering. They've seen the aging. So they're not, it's not saying that at all. But rather, the laughter of disbelief is one day replaced by the joy of fulfilled promise. In our text, that comes with the later birth of one named Isaac, which means he laughs or he smiles. That's a nod to the joy of that beautiful moment, a moment that wears the biggest of grins, all the while not forgetting the disbelieving past. What more, this is but the beginning of a flurry of blessings to be unleashed to all the world in Christ and through Christ, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. And all of this is because of God, the steadfast one, who transforms stories and situations, persons and possibilities, who doles out names as a witness to the reality of what God had done, what God is doing, and what God will do. You want to take a nice little side trip down, seeing how names can be changed, which depict a new future, take a read of Isaiah chapter 62. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for a community to have its name changed because of God's promises and work of restoration. That here, love and care of all creation that we saw in the promise of Noah is now matched with the love and rescue of you and me here in the story of Abraham. Luke Rowland offers an imaginative reflection that he aptly titles Abraham's Obituary on a site called Faith Lead. It's an initiative of Luther Seminary. 
And as you might guess, in a title like that, when we talk about an obituary, Roland invites the reader to imagine that you are waking up in Hebron thousands of years ago. You're having your morning coffee and reading the Hebron Daily News on a tablet of stone. It was a long time ago. You scroll down to the obituaries and you find that Father Abraham has died. News like this would be a shock. Abraham was a biblical figure of extreme substance and importance. A figure of that proportion would have tributes coming in from all over. How do you think his obituary would read, Roland asked? What would he be remembered for? That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question, particularly toward unpacking who Abraham was and what he's accomplished, and even Sarah as well, if we extended it out to the family. And I imagine here that such ponderings might get our wheels going toward thinking about our own lives, who we are, and what we are up to. Roland here supposes that, quote, if Abraham lived and died in our modern day, we would likely read of his many achievements and accomplishments, that we might learn that Abraham was a very successful man, that we might even acknowledge he was caring and thoughtful leader to allow his nephew Lot to join him on the journey to Canaan. Among other things, we'd, we'd have notable career highlights and life achievements kind of stuff, is what we would say. But knowing how common such expressions are in our own day, when we write our own obituaries or we, we write them for others, that might be common, it might be consistent, but it's hardly imaginative. It's hardly imaginative. Instead, Roland invites readers to consider an altogether different obituary for Abraham. And not just Roland, but the Apostle Paul does as well. Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 4, who will conclude if Paul wrote Abraham's obituary, this is Roland now, it might simply say, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That was the only thing that really mattered about Abraham. He was a slup. He made lots of mistakes. He was like you and me. He wasn't always the firm believer. Try to weasel his way out of things. Tell stories. Pretend like his wife was his sister, which was actually kind of true, but he was doing that kind of thing to get out of trouble. He was very much like us, leading a life where decisions are made out of fear until he was encountered by the love of God. And God called him and chose him because God loved him. It was from God's design and God's purposes. And changed his name and changed the possibility of his life. There's an old Christian tradition, so I've heard. I'll take it on uh, face value. It's been told to me, and I've used it ever since in baptisms. Where when a child is baptized, oftentimes where you see this, the parents are asked to give the child's first and middle name but not their surname. The tradition here affirms that in baptism, we are enjoined into a new family, that we become God's own people. And with the reception of covenant promises consistent with God's grace through the ages, and now bearing the mark of our Creator and claimed by God, we are then enjoined and engrafted into that new family. We become children of God and thereby given a new name. That sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah. Claimed and chosen, given a new name with promises attached to it. But today we live in a world where those who consider Abraham a common ancestor are at odds with one another. That's the world we live in. 
representing different perspectives, even if you think about just the conflict right now that rages in that land where Abraham, Sarah, and their family once traversed. Think about the many interests that exist there. I was reading Commonweal, an article about a week ago, Thomas Bankoff identifies the challenge here when he writes, for religious Jews, the land of Israel is a divine inheritance. Muslim solidarity with Palestinians is reinforced by the holy status of Jerusalem in the Islamic tradition. Christian leaders often express both sympathy for Palestinian co-religionists and recognize Israel as a Jewish homeland against the historical backdrop of the crime of the Holocaust perpetrated in a Christian-majority Europe. So this might speak to what we might imagine as being the Abrahamic challenge of our day, which would try to sort out the differences and the difficulties, the troubles of our day that we live in as ancestors and the children of Abraham. But perhaps we might hear in all this as well, alongside our text, the Abrahamic opportunity, that there's an opportunity for us as well, namely what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, your name has been changed. If you belong to Christ, the blessing and the promise of given to Abraham and Sarah lives in you, and the possibility of a future looks great because of God's great love. And as much as it pains me to end this sermon with this song, I do so anyways. Yes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. We might also add daughters as well. Sons and daughters to Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. I am one of them, and so are you because of Jesus Christ. I've added some flourishes in here. So let's all praise the Lord. And thank God for the life that we enjoy because of Jesus Christ. And not grow slack in offering an invitation to all who hear this word to come and to receive the blessing and to receive that new name and promise that God has for them. Maybe so for each one of us in this generation and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your love. Your love that led to you calling to a family and calling them out of the place of comfort. Called them from their father's household, from the land that they had known. You called them to a new place. You gave them a new name. You offered a promise of a future that looked bigger, stronger, and brighter than they could ever possibly have imagined. And that these promises were fulfilled over a long period of time makes no difference in knowing now that they were fulfilled, but your memory, memory is a lot longer than ours and much more steadfast. So, Lord, in our own day, as we see troubles that surround us, not only in the culture in which we live, in the communities in which we inhabit, and even in the spaces of our own heart, pray, Lord, that we would not grow slack, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us, 
that we too might lay hold of and lay claim to that promise that we have in Jesus Christ. As heirs of Abraham, as children of Sarah, as children of God, and the great joy that comes with that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.